verses 3 through 11. And if you're using the Bible there in the pew in front of you, that's page 980. Philippians 1, verses 3 through 11. And God's word says this. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Please be seated. And let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we engage in his word. Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit's presence with us. Thank you that we are not reading the Bible alone. We're reading it uh, together and thinking about it as a congregation. But even when we're by ourselves and reading, that we're not reading alone, that your Holy Spirit is there to, to speak to us as we engage and meditate and think and accept and receive it. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true. And thank you for your Holy Spirit's help as we engage it. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of us have time, I think, when we can think, have a thinking time. Uh, There's a time I had a friend, and he had a, down in Delaware, he had a big yard, and and, uh, I could always tell when he'd been out on his riding lawnmower because that was his think time, and and that was his time as he's doing that task and thinking about, you know, not running over bushes or whatever or flowers his wife had planted. But he said, that's my thinking time. And that was a meditation time for him. And he kind of looked forward to hopping on the, the mower and riding around because that was a time where he couldn't, uh, he, he could shut everything else out except that task. And that was his praying, thinking, contemplating time. Maybe for you it's something different than that. It's hard for us. There's so much pressing on us for attention. And those of us, you know, I'm convinced that uh, a lot of us would have been diagnosed with some form of, uh, of some kind of attention uh, thing had they had a lot of that back in the day, <laughs> you know, and, and, and we do. We have things that are after us. You say, how did, oh, Calvin and all those people and, and spend their time, McShane and, and, and folks, some guy taught himself Greek just from the text and you go, how could they do that? And one advantage he had is there wasn't a lot of everything else uh, just picking at him. And, and sometimes we do it to ourselves. Uh, the phone has the alarm on it. 
So the alarm goes off, you grab the phone. Say, I wonder what's happening in the world. And we go through our routine, our, our ritual of this site, this site, this site, this. And, and sometimes it can really get us uh, on, on time and in time alone. Uh, it's, I'm the kind of person that has to have something on, seems like. Ball game on with the volume down. Music on over here. In some ways, that's a wall of sound, and it's how I operate. But boy, not saying it's a sin to have a smartphone, because it's not. Or to have a radio or an iPad or a television set. Not a sin at all. Uh, these are, are things that can be used and good and are wonderful. Um, I'm saying in my life, sometimes... Uh, it can be detrimental to my own meditation on the word and need to, to, to think about that, all of us. When's your meditation time? When's your think time? When's your time when you can pray? And, and uh, sometimes it even takes us training ourselves or retraining ourselves. Uh, prison has been a time in history that is been well known for people to have time to get their thoughts together. Sometimes the prison sentence has, has done wonders for the world and for the church without getting into a lot of the secular ones, but just think about uh, John Bunyan being in prison and writing Pilgrim's Progress. I thought of him just off the top of my head. Uh, a few years ago, I read through Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Letters and Papers from Prison. Uh, there was clarity of thought. There wasn't the fear of, am I going to be put in prison? Because he was there. That had happened. Uh, he wasn't teaching seminary students. He wasn't doing what he was doing. He was in prison, focused. Each year on MLK Day, I read the letter from the Birmingham jail. You think about prison and that being a time of centering people. Paula and I recently watched one of my very favorite movies, A Man for All Seasons. I think they've redone it, and I don't know about the redone version, but, but go back to the 60s and watch that one. And that is such an encouragement that there is more in prison with clarity of thought, with getting ready for his trial, with thinking and praying and contemplating. And, and it was a very, very good time for him. Uh, things came out of prison sentences for God's people that have been good. And we have that today, a letter from Paul in prison. Time to think. If he had had a vision of a Macedonian saying, come over here and help us, he couldn't have done anything about it because he was in a Roman prison. Uh, he didn't have to think about who to take on his next missionary journey. He really could do nothing in his prison except pray, think, whatever parchments they would bring to him and they allowed him to have, uh, develop his theology, talk to God, and write these letters. Uh, and, and we don't know how many letters he, he wrote. It's not like he only wrote the five that we have in our script. He would have written a lot, um, you would think. But he's able to, under the influence and the uh, help of the Holy Spirit, the breathing out of scriptures, he's able to write. And so we get this letter from prison where Paul's senses are sharpened, where the distractions aren't there and he can focus. And here's what he's writing in prison. 
I wrote this, so I'll read it. Uh, with his time to commune with God, to reminisce, to encourage people in a different way than he had been used to, his mind turned to the little church in Philippi. And from that we get this wonderful letter and the example of prayer that we're going to look at right now. So here's something in here for us that came out of Paul in prison. Three things for us to observe in Paul's prayer for the Philippian church, followed by uh, a focus on one of these verses that I think we all need uh, pretty desperately. And that's this. Here's the three points. One, how Paul prays for the Philippian believers. Next, what Paul prays for the Philippian believers. Finally, why Paul prays for the Philippian believers. So first, how Paul prays for the Philippian believers. And I'm not talking about uh, the context of of the text. I'm talking about what's his mindset going in. How does he approach his prayer for them? Uh, Is it, I pull out my list, I say their name, I check it off and keep going? Uh, What's going on in Paul's mind and heart as he prays for this church that he's now writing the letter to? Well, he prays, first of all, thankfully, joyfully, and affectionately. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Verse 4. Four and five, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Yes, he was thankful for them. This letter on the human level was begun as a response of telling them thank you for a gift they had sent him. But he couldn't be thankful for them without giving thanks to God for them. We know, don't we, from Scripture, that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from God. That's in the letter to James, or from James, back in the back of of our New Testament. Every good gift comes from God. And maybe we forget this, but sometimes I know we, we are inclined to forget that even the people in our lives are good gifts from God. And that person who means so much to you, who's been with you through thick and thin, who's taken care of and encouraged and seen you at your worst and your best and and has stayed there, uh, that person is a gift from God to you. People can be gifts from God. Has it been a while since you thanked God for your family, for your parents who did their best with you? and who stayed with you, for that husband or wife, for those kids, thinking and thanking God for the people that he's given to you. That's a present. That's a gift. He said he was joyful and thankfully thinking about them because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day. Uh, They were there in Philippi. We, we recounted some of them. The Philippian jailer, Lydia by the water, uh, various ones, and they were there. And from the very first day that they received God's grace and God convicted them of their sins and they repented and put their faith in Christ, they were all in. And he said, I'm thankful for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Uh, they were there 
uh, through all of it, interested, caring about what Paul was doing in other places. Uh, it would be easy to just focus on a personal faith and, and what God's doing in my life, and it's good to see what's God doing in my life or in the life of the church, but there's a whole world out there of people, and you hear stories of God saving people and God moving, and, and uh, some pastor got up, and he had yesterday gone uh, with a group of pastors about what it to share the gospel in these little towns. They heard the, the American is coming, and they crowded 30 people into a little hut and people looking in the windows, and they are there to hear him be able to talk about Jesus and salvation and things are moving around the world. And it's, it's good to know and be excited about. And Paul was thankful that the Philippian church was interested not just in their neck of the woods, but in the spread of the gospel through the world. God's global glory they were interested in. Sometimes uh, they feed each other. I know uh, watching teenagers go on mission trips and, and true mission trips where there was some, some work involved and in building a building for uh, deaf kids to have school in, but also uh, people having taught them sign language and taught them how to share the gospel in sign language. And they, they got a burden and a heart for people around the world who were likewise on their way to hell without salvation from God. And these teenagers would come back and they'd say, wow, it took me going to this place to then come back to my high school lunchroom and to be concerned and pray for that person on the other side of the lunchroom to where I want to share the gospel with him or her. And Paul was so thankful, he said, for the Philippians with his joy toward them, his affection, because of the way they were partners in the gospel from the first day until now. Look at verse 7, how he said, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. Uh, that's language we can understand and even use now. If you're right here, you're in my heart, you're, you're, you're somebody I care about. He was affectionate as he prayed for them. I hold you in my heart. You've been partakers in grace. You've been with me, he said, uh, both in my imprisonment and gospel. You've been partakers of grace, no matter if I was a front page of, of Christianity Today or one of these magazines, Outreach or something, and I was the hottest, fastest growing church in America, and I'm, or when I'm just an obscure guy in prison because you are with me, no matter if things look from the surface like they're going good or bad, they were there. And his affection was with them. And he said in verse 8, God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And that's pretty open, that's pretty sharing, and that's pretty wonderful. He prayed for them, thankfully, joyfully, and affectionately. How else did he pray for them? He prayed for them incessantly. Verses 3 and 4, look at these uh, statements, these words. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, 
making my prayer with joy. Uh, Paul, who would have known words and used the right words in the right time and, and wasn't like uh, people prone to exaggeration and this being the, the scriptures and this being God-breathed, uh, you can take it for what it, for what it says. And he was always praying for them. Incessant prayer. He didn't say, oh, I prayed for them last week. No, he was not with them, but he loved them. There's a pastor that meets in our pastor's group. We've got about four pastors that meet, and we meet here every once a month. Usually it's a third Thursday. Sometimes it gets bumped around. But this pastor is now at a point where uh, he's got to retire, take his wife. He's got some, some physical uh, disabilities and needs, and he's going down, and they've got a little uh, grandparent suite. His son's a pastor in Florida. He's got to pitch in down there, and, and uh, grandma gets to see the grandkids, and they get to see her, and it's, it's a very good thing for him to be able to go down there. But what's his heart? What's his worry? That little church in Newtown is going to close its doors. And he is trying to find places for his people. So-and-so lives out here. He lives out here by your church, Dave. Uh, maybe, and he's trying to find because his heart is for his people. Uh, and his prayer will be incessantly for these folks, even though he's away. Just like Paul had an incessant, constant prayer, not for just his own situation, which I'm sure he prayed about, but for the people that were there in that church. Then he prayed lastly, and how did he pray? He prayed confidently. Verse 6, and this is the one we're going to spend a little more time on at the very end, so we'll just read it and note that he prayed confidently. Uh, this could be a good verse for all of us to rememorize. Write on a little card somewhere and, 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 and hold this uh, on our consciousness. He says in verse 6, And I am sure of this, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's praying for them, but he's praying confidently. Even as he prays for their growth, he says, I know that God started it. God will finish it. So that's our first point, how he prayed for the believers. Thankfully, joyfully, affectionately, incessantly, and confidently. So, hearing that, hearing Paul's attitude for these people in prayer, what exactly does he pray for? I would, I would want to know. Okay, so now, now that that's his approach to them, what specific things does he pray for them when he prays for them? Well, I'm glad you asked. Second point, what Paul prays for the Philippian Christians. Verse 9, it begins uh, with, he says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. He prays that their love may abound more and more. Love for each other. Uh, we'll see toward the end of this book, when we get there in a few uh, weeks, uh, there was a little minor conflict he, he was free to address at the end in chapter 4, asking somebody to come in and help intervene. So there was just these little, little, little niggling things, not, not major, not like the Corinthian church, but boy, we get people in and we, we forget. And then he says, I'm praying that your love for each other grows more and more. 
It had started with God's love for them and saving them. And it was continuing in their love for their fellow believers, for their adopted family members, for their brothers and sisters who had also been loved by God and saved by God. The more and more phrase is good for all of us. He didn't say, I pray that your love would increase till you arrive and hit that magic moment. No more growth necessary. More and more. We're talking about something called progressive sanctification of growing. Uh, and, and we believe and know we, we, we have covered this well, I think. Uh, nobody in this life hits a point where they never sin. Never sin. They hit that point. There's people who teach that, but they don't hit that. And I'm thinking about, uh, I didn't even check with Paula's story about when you were a 13 or 14-year-old working for that woman in that church. And, and she was trying to tell Paula, uh, and Paula's working for her and saying, uh, you can hit the point where you don't sin, and I've hit the point where I don't sin. And even at that age, Paula was like, are you sure? And Paula pressed her and pressed her and pressed her. And she finally said, well, every now and then I'll make a mistake. <laughs> um, so got to the point. There's no perfection. There's growth progressively. So when you hear the word sanctification, it's a progressive in this life when you're talking about that. Now, there's something that's a different topic for a different time called positional sanctification. And when God looks at you, he looks at you as perfectly holy and righteous and, and not as one who hasn't sinned, and he does that because of what Jesus did in, in taking your sin and paying for that. But in this life, we walk through, and we do have an obligation, but it's more than an obligation. It's like an inevitability. You can't help it. If God saves you, uh, connected to, to justification, to that saving, connected to it is sanctification, and then finally in heaven, glorification. So it's like, God pushes that first domino, and it's connected to all of them. And so, really, if you're truly a Christian, you can't help but catch yourself being, because the Spirit's in you, uh, your attitudes have changed, and, and Paul even brings that out in here where he says, I just pray for your love for each other to grow more and more. Uh, very good uh, for Paul, for God through Paul to, to have taught us this. The rest of verse 9, what does he pray for them? He prays, first of all, as we said, that your love grows more and more, but next, with knowledge and discernment. Uh, one of the people I read, I, I liked how he put this, and he pointed out the inter, he called it the interweaving of knowledge and love. The interweaving of knowledge and love. This is not just in Philippians where Paul says this. Uh, Paul, later on in, in one of his letters, he would say, uh, speaking the truth in love, we you know, do this, we do that. And he's talking about speaking the truth, having the love. And there's an interweaving. Um, you can't, as a Christian, they're going to be combined. You can't really have one or the other. You don't have to make a choice of one or the other. People that tend to be strongest in one way based on their temperament and their spiritual gifts, shouldn't give themselves a free pass. Well, I'm just, uh, I'm more of the knowledge guy, and I'm more of that. And so, you know, if I'm short in the love department, well, you just have to take me as I am, because that's just how I'm going to be. 
Well, that's not what Paul would say. Paul would say, brother, I'm going to pray for you that your love will grow more and more. You can't say, oh, I'm just a, a loving guy, and who cares with all these technicalities of the, of the gospel and theology and, and, and right and wrong? I'm just going to love. Like the elder I heard about at a church. True story. In a galaxy long ago and far away and all that stuff. But uh, there was a clear-cut case among the church members where a man had really done something egregious. And it was going to make the name of God look bad. It was going to make the church look bad. Um, uh, the, the point, and I heard a young man get asked this in ordination, you know, what's the point of church discipline? And, and the, the first answer has always got to be for the glory of God and the second for the restoration of the person being disciplined. Uh, but uh, the elder said, okay, we've got we to gotta withhold the communion from him. He's not acting like a Christian. It was a first step in church discipline. And one of those elders said, well, I agree with you, but because I took my spiritual gifts test and because I'm a mercy, I'm going to vote against it. <laughs> and he limited himself <laughs> to the combination, the interweaving of knowledge and love, and he felt the loving thing to do would be to not, and you go, that's not quite right. Um, you might have heard this phrase, people have said this, and I, I think it's true, um, You'll hear somebody say um, the most misunderstood kind of child abuse, not the worst kind, because there are evil worst kinds, but the most misunderstood or the sneakiest kind is to give your kid everything they want because they want it. And they say that is also a form of child abuse. That is not helping them discern, not helping teach them delayed gratification. It's not going to help them in life. And, and you we think it's loving, and that's not so loving. That's maybe another L word, lazy. Um, Paul said, we combine uh, that, that in your love that I want to pray for for you, that in that love it may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. Um, better way... I think that helps me to understand it, approve the things that matter. That you'll be able to see this matters more than this. This is a priority over that. I joke with, with Paul. We'll watch a movie, and at the end, sometimes it'll say, uh, you know, on, on the screen, rate this movie, you know, and I always, it's a joke. Paula knows I'm going to say it. If I don't say it, she'll say it for me in my voice. Five stars, five stars. And I just joke about giving every movie ever five stars. Um, well, there's a discernment. Uh, if every movie's a five-star movie, then no movie's a one-star movie. And that's not true, is it? Um, he's saying, I want you to look in your life and see what are the five-star things, what are the three-star things, what are the one-star things. Approve and see what's important. So he's praying for them, praying for them to have discernment. A way that I love it. Whenever I hear somebody say this, I... I I remember the first time I heard it, I said, that is really good. And then the hundredth time I heard somebody say it, I said, that is really good. When somebody has an issue going on in their life and they go, oh, that's first world problems. And they're putting a perspective into their life. They're not saying it's not a problem, but they're putting it in perspective of, of what's going on around the world or what could be and what other people are facing. And being able to discern and put, put our issues where they need to be 
and to say what's important. First things first and second things second. And he's praying for them to have spiritual discernment and to see uh, God's glory is what we're going to get to as the thing that matters. So he prays for them. Talk to a mom and a grandma and a great-grandma. She says in her letters that she writes to her grandkids when she'll throw a few bucks in an envelope with a birthday card or something, and she's, she writes that old, what I used to consider a cliche, now I see is more true than ever. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And from her perspective, looking back, uh, that's what she wants to impart. Um, kids or grandkids are happy for a little money on the side with it. But that's, that's the real treasure right there. Discern the things that matter. I've heard of an old preacher in the country. And he had kids in his youth group or kids in the church. And, and he gave them all, I don't know what the occasion was. It was some occasion. And he said, all right, you can choose. And this is back in the day when a dollar was a dollar and not 14 cents. A dollar was, a do- was, was pretty good. Choose a dollar or choose this New Testament. And some kids did take the dollar. and Some kids took the New Testament, but taped inside the New Testament was a dollar. Um, and so they, they chose wisely and, and, and they did the right. Paul's praying, I want you to choose wisely. I want discernment. My prayer for you, who I love so much, is that your love will abound more and more, that you'll be able to not just uh, be blinded by some false sense of love, but it'll be discernment with that and, and, and knowledge intermingled and interwoven, as, as the text said. And I'm praying this for you because I love you so much. That was his prayer. That is what he prayed. He prayed then in verse 10 as we move along. He prayed that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Uh, the day of Christ is presented as a possibility. The day of Christ is always given as a definite. If you're wanting something to discern, discern that first. Get that day of Christ and you will, along with all of us, be standing in front of the judgment seat of Christ. That's clear. And he says, I want you, when you are facing the day of Christ, that you will be pure and blameless. I'm praying that your faith is the real deal. Positionally, yes, of course. But I want the actions to back up the words. Um, People run hot and cold sometimes. Uh, The whole parable of the soils where he's out there sowing and and some hit the rocky ground or some hit the, the path and the birds ate it and there was no gospel anything. Others sprang up with joy, but it hit the rocks underneath and, and it wilted. Uh, he's praying for the good soil, for the growth, for the clear-cut um, evidence uh, and proof that, that, that their faith is real and true. A Philippian jailer was a real person. He's praying the Philippian jailer doesn't get on some committee or something working with Lydia and 
have his heart torn away from his wife and kids and, and run out and leave and, and uh, sit on the outside and, and uh, criticize Paul and everybody that's in that church. He's praying for good things, for a good finish, for discernment. He's praying for that jailer uh, all the way through. We do say in, in, in our reform circles, maybe, maybe it's beyond reform circles, but I hadn't heard it till, till I was a young man, where the person said, I am saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. And Paul is saying, I'm praying that that's the real deal. I'm praying for your life. I'm praying that when the time you get to Judgment Day, you will be, uh, have experienced this sanctification process on the way through as well. He's praying that whatever hard times the Christian faced, death or ridicule of maybe an unbelieving spouse or financial hard times or state-sponsored persecution, that they would increasingly grow in their faith, resulting in a life that inch by inch looks a little more like Jesus and then looking back, surprised to themselves, a lot like Jesus. And I think people that have been Christians for a while can say that. They go, man, I would have been caught dead doing that uh, thing. I would have made, made fun of somebody. I would have thought they were just a little bit too religious or too goofy or something. And yet here I am, I'm doing that because I'm a Christian. And I'm, I'm doing something that the world would consider off. And I would have thought it was off. But no, I'm living for Christ. praying that there really would be the soil where the gospel took root. Why? Last point. Why does, and it's only one point, why does Paul pray for these things with the love and affection and thankfulness that he has when he thinks of the Philippians? It's verse 11. It's tied in with that classic question, what is the chief end of man? He's praying for this for them uh, to the glory and praise of God. He wants God to be glorified in their lives. He wants them to be saved. He wants them to grow. He wants them to be unified. He wants them to be godly and Christ-like and on that last day, and God to be glorified in their lives. What's the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Why are you breathing air? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's what he's praying for in all of his things. What can glorify God? It says in a letter later, uh, a later letter, he, he says, uh, whatsoever you, you know, all things are lawful, all things are necessary, etc., etc." He goes, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And there's a wide bunch of things we get to do to the glory of God as our qualifier. And that's what he's for. Now, we're moving toward a conclusion. I want us to focus on verse 6. First of all, to say it is valid for us as Christians in 2022 to apply this to ourselves. This isn't just a letter from him to them. What makes this valid for us as people? Well, for one, it is in Scripture as a factual model prayer. It never would have been breathed out by God and be part of God's canon of Scripture if it wasn't true. There's no correction in saying, there's no editor's note in here from God saying, but he was wrong, he should have prayed this and that. No, it's held up as a model for prayer. 
So this is a model for us to look at. This is part of the Christian life. Paul would say later on, he will say later on, follow me as I am following Christ. You want to know how to pray for somebody? Well, there's other things in addition to this, but this is a good start. If you, if you take this and say, I'm going to pray for them like Paul prayed for the Philippians, uh, that's a good thing to pray for, that their love would grow more and more. All those things, knowledge and discernment. Um, God breathed out these words. They were included in the canon for a reason, and we are part of the reason. Praying this prayer for others, then, is a proper biblical thing to do. I do pray this for for people. I've started more. I'm thinking of Abishek and Tina and Noel. Boy, I pray for them. I didn't leave them. God called them up there, but boy, we love them. And we know what it was like to have them as part of our church. And there was so much. And boy, what if you said, boy, I miss those guys. Hey, I'm going to pray this prayer for them. That their love would grow more and more of knowledge and discernment. That, boy, that's a that's a good prayer to pray for people that you love that you're apart from. Do it. Apply it to yourself as a godly track for your own life. You said, "Hey, um, if this is God's heart through Paul for those people, this is God's heart for me. God, help me to grow in love more and more. God, help me to discern more and more." Pray the prayer for yourself. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's, uh, it's a good thing to do. Apply it to yourself as a godly track for your own life as you desire to see confirmation that the gospel is real in the soil of your own life. And then finally, just to, to look at this last part, the God involvement in your life. I think this can be an encouragement to you, especially when you find yourself caught up in some sin and you go, man, not even a Christian. How could I even think that? Boy, why would I do that? I'm a Christian. Boy, ugh. remind yourself from Scripture, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Who started your salvation? Well, that was God. I was just smart enough to hear it, and I signed the deal, so I'm the one who was smart enough to get saved. I don't think so. Who started it? When did it start? It even started back before you got saved. You look back and think of the things God was doing, just even softening that soil to throw the seed in. Here's your illustration, Laura. I I asked Laura, and she said, yep, go ahead. Uh, Laura sang in uh, the... uh, Connecticut Choral Society, soprano. Afterwards, we're going to ask you to come up and sing something. I'm just kidding you. But we were talking about all the things God had done in her life, preparing her. And one of those things, I said, I bet you sang Handel's Messiah. She goes, yeah, you read the words in in the communion, some of those. And to listen to that now and to say, God even had those words I can sing those words along. I can put the recording in it. I know those words. God was putting scripture into me even as he was preparing to save me. Think about God just doing these things and all the things in all of our lives. God getting ready to reach down and love you and save you. God began a good work in you. God began a good work in you. Uh, He began that work even getting you ready uh, for the Holy Spirit's call. 
and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you couldn't save yourself. You were just spiritually dead. Dead. Uh, dead as a doornail, however uh, uh, Dickens put it. And goes into what is a doornail, and how can a doornail be dead, and all that fun stuff from uh, a Christmas Carol. But you were dead. You couldn't save yourself. God brought you to spiritual life. He began that. And here's the good news about God that is different than us. God finishes what he starts. Since your salvation is of God, your security then is in God. If you had a part in saving yourself, then you know yourself uh, better than I do, and you know yourself, and you know you can't keep yourself saved. And you can be fearful every day of your life that it didn't take. But it, since we know it's God who started it, we know God will finish it. You can all start things. And I do appreciate and love people who consistently finish what they start. I admire them. I want to learn from them. When they follow through and finish, they are reflecting God. If I start something and give up, lose interest, do a halfway job, don't complete my promises, go, yeah, 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 shrug it off, I'm not reflecting God when I do that. God does not run out of resources. God does not run out of interest. Ah, her. Yeah, I saved her, but she's boring now. Here's somebody else I'm going to save, and, and, and they're a little more exciting. No, God doesn't run out of interest in your life. He was so interested in you to call you back from spiritual death, and he's going to stay with it. Somebody said, you could run 2,000 miles from God, but when you take one step back, he's right there, right behind you. One step there, back to it. He's there. He's not going to let you get away. Uh, what did Jesus say? All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and no one will be able to pluck them out of my hand. Why? Because it's God starting it, God making the promise, God being the finisher. In wintertime, you call your tree man, and you say, I want you to cut down every tree at our property that doesn't have any leaves. You're cutting down a lot of live trees. You better wait and mark them in the fall if they're dead, or wait till the spring comes and see which ones are dead. Uh, even in our own lives, where it looks like there's nothing going on on the outside, there is life coursing through us. Uh, God is the one who saves and starts and gives life. And even if we don't see it so much uh, on the outside in other people or in ourselves even, there's life where there's life. And God gives the life and God finishes what he starts. I sent this verse to a couple of friends of mine. Two different situations. One who had a strong Christian testimony, and I said, that guy, boy, and who now has totally, but I know, I've prayed with that person, that friend, I've, I've done, and so I just said, I'm just going to send this out there and see what happens. And I sent the text, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. And see if the Holy Spirit uses it. If, if that brother's really a Christian, and maybe God uses that, but God will bring that person back. And we heard yesterday, Rick and I, about some discouraging uh, pastor leaving a pulpit and, and just discouraged, came up here to plant and, and, and just kind of hurting. 
And he needed that verse too. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. It's not the outward circumstances. It's what God started and God will finish. So be encouraged by that. Love the faith that God has given you. Pray the prayer for yourself and for others that Paul prayed in these scriptures. And realize it's God who started it. God finishes what he starts. Let's pray and and go to the table. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for being a God who is uh, always in a starting mood, but in a completion mood. And we thank you that you will finish what you started. And thank you that our confidence is there in that, in you. In Jesus' name, amen.